Welcome to Conversation Mill. My name is Rebecca Dale and I am the host of the show. I have a passion for sharing how the creation of thriving local economies benefits us all. I'm fascinated by how we come together to form our communities on a macro and micro scale and how our histories and stories when shared can not only motivate and inspire, but can facilitate understanding. It's time to engage these community leaders and small business owners in conversation. What are the driving forces behind their courage and success? And how can we continue to build communities that embrace diversity, support the local economy, and create a healthy ecosystem for the culture at large? Join us now in conversation. Josh Bogle is an adaptive surfer who has competed since 2018 in surf contests around the world. Josh sat down with me to share his story of becoming a quad amputee and the remarkable healing journey he found himself on. I met Josh at his home in Haiku on Maui on a rainy morning where we sat at his kitchen table with the porch doors open, the soothing sounds of rain, and the haiku countryside coming in. Josh's space is welcoming and comfortable, as is he. Josh's energy is uplifting while putting you at ease. And his faithful sidekick, Maya, joined us to give the podcast her vibe check, and we passed. Later in the podcast, Josh shares how Maya is more than a service dog and must have been sent right to him from some other place. Check out the show notes of this episode to learn how to support the completion of Josh's forthcoming documentary, True North. Now, join us in conversation as Josh takes us through his journey of healing. I want to walk through your story of resilience, but yeah, can we take it back to your childhood? Where did you grow up? I grew up near one of the largest wilderness areas in Wyoming, and it borders Yellowstone National Park. So I grew up right on the edge of really pristine wilderness with elk, buffalo, moose. Mm -hmm. And um, so my, my reality was that kind of on the edge of the plains. Because yeah. Wyoming has that cool, it's it's really flat going into like Dakotas and Kansas. And then when you run into the Rocky Mountains, they just jut right up out of the plains. Mm -hmm. So I grew up right there. <laughs> what was your family dynamic? Was it, did you have a mom and dad, siblings? Yeah. On my dad's side, I'm part Lakota Sioux. Mm -hmm. And, um, but he was a Southern California surfer and wanted to get back in touch with those roots. So when he met my mom in um, California, they moved to the Lakota reservation Oh wow! in South okay. Dakota. And she was a school teacher. I think he worked for the BLM and was doing the wild horse range management. Mm. So had, had a mom and a dad lived yeah. in a small little um, ranch house. Pretty cool dynamic. They wanted to immerse me in wilderness. So I learned traditional Native American beading, how to tan hides, how to hunt mm. um, fish. So really, really cool parents, nature-bound parents. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and you've kind of described it a little bit, but how would you describe your childhood? What 
you know, what were really the highlights of it? Oh my gosh. Um, I came in this really cool era of, of a childhood where you would stay out until dark. Mm. There wasn't helmets, right? There Me were too. no yeah. cell phones. So, um, you know, if you could, if, if you were late and the parents were in the car driving around beeping the horn, you knew you're in trouble. Yeah. And that was the like, <laughs> Oh, I've stayed out too late. Um, but yeah, it was in that like cool era of with between snowboarding and BMX biking and mountain biking and all of these sports that were pushing themselves. There was some also real consequence in those because mm. we were just learning about avalanche danger and the science was there, but it wasn't like a super practice thing. Yeah. But growing up on the edge of the, um, the Grand Tetons, we we're in steep mountain country. So there was real... Real everyday danger, whether it was snowmobiling or snowboarding, that that happened. I think in my childhood that was a an interesting element to grow up next to, and rodeos and things. Everything seemed so wild. Yeah. That um, yeah, it was like you would come home all beaten up, and and the parents would be like, "Oh, go put a little like lidocaine or or spray it down like there was no like oh you got an ubu or a, an owie yeah yeah <laughs> and your arm would be like fully like gashed <laughs> from like <laughs> skateboarding down the road and sliding down the hill yeah. yeah i grew up much the same way in that um grew up on 40 acres and would just like take off for the day and go play and just yeah. come home when it was dinner time and um, my grandma's being like, what, you just let her go off? Like she's eight years old, just wandering in the woods on 40 acres. And they're like, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. it's what she wants to do. And that is, I didn't want to be stuck in the house. I wanted to be outside exploring. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Nature is the coolest thing, especially as a, as a kid growing up. I um, remember my grandparents sent me the National Audubon book for birds <laughs> And living in like the winter where birds migrate through, yeah. I would go out with bags of bird seed in the snow and sprinkle it and then sit inside and try to identify all the birds that were coming through. Like, I'm laughing so hard because people listening right now who are my friends and family are going to be laughing because in the last like five to six years, I've become a little obsessive with birds. And so yeah. um, that's that's so something I would do and probably something <laughs> oh, I did no as way. a kid. Yeah. I don't think the audience can see this, but I have like the two or three bird feeders, right? I have two right there on the porch Oh, oh that's awesome. and another one over here. Yeah. And um, I still do the like, I still feed birds and, yeah. and see which ones are cruising around. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to take a picture of that before I go because that's, <laughs> that's me. Awesome. So you mentioned your father was uh, Native American. How did that culture, that side of your family play into how you were being raised or or maybe what you took away from that? At that it, I'm really grateful that as a, an early kid, I grew up learning traditional mm. ways, but it wasn't something that was deeply practiced in my family. It was something my dad growing up in Southern California and his connection to like surfing and nature, he wanted to re-tap back into those roots. So I was born in the Rocky Mountains, not near the ocean. And he was already tanning buckskins, hunting, carving and making his own knives. Like there was just really, I'm really grateful that he went and tapped back into those roots because I got to grow up with those practices. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so it enriched my life as a kid learning those ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's jump forward and talk about leading up to your becoming a quadruple amputee. Yeah. What, well, I guess let's just jump to what was the cause of that? Yeah, I, um, it's kind of a, a three pronged event. Um, I was a big mountain snowboarder and used to jump cliffs and climb really extreme routes in the backcountry to find the most extreme way down. Yeah. Um, and in the process of doing that over several years, um, had injured myself. And so mm. drinking and Vicodin and Percocet was like a, just a natural way of dealing with the back pain and neck pain from injuries. Um, I then got in a car wreck in Colorado. I rolled my car end over end four times going 75 and was thrown from the car and re-injured my back and shattered my left shoulder. Ended up, and back then doctors, Oxycontin was thought to be relatively safe for long-term pain Mm -hmm. management. So I, even though I was still working jobs in the restaurant industry or being a baker, I took pain medication for my chronic pain for about five years. And the the events that led to the amputations was a strep infection in my jawbone. I got strep throat from some bad dental work. And over two or three months, the strep kept coming back. The strep bacteria got into my bloodstream, through my jawbone, into my heart, ended up having strep endocarditis and had to have open heart surgery. I was given the wrong type of blood in the hospital pre-open heart surgery. I'm O negative, I'm the universal donor. Mm-hmm. I was given O positive blood, so it caused this reaction in my blood where my blood had a hard time um, coagulating wow. and clotting. So I almost bled out from the open heart surgery on the table. I was in on the table 17 hours. They had to open me back up. Um, it seemed like that was the rock bottom for me. Mm-hmm. And the cardiologist said, I've never taken up, uh, done an open heart surgery on a patient taking six to eight pain meds a day pre-surgery. So coming out of the surgery, of course, they had given me more medication to do the surgery. My immune system being compromised. I stepped on a fish hook in Lahaina and um, I had taken my mom whale watching and deep sea fishing. And so it was this exact, it was March of 2012, four months after the open heart surgery, my liver and kidneys completely shut down. I had gotten MRSA in my blood from the fish hook. So three days after stepping on the fish hook, I'm being rushed to Maui Memorial, full liver kidney failure. And um, they had to medically induce a coma. I was in a coma 10 days. It was lack of oxygen to my extremities while I was in, in a coma. And that's where I like to talk about the, the kiss of aloha, something mm-hmm. So much bigger than me in that absolute like ancestral place where my soul is fighting for my body in this lifeline. Yeah. 
I remember losing ha. Huh, I remember that like losing breath and being in that like that state of right on the edge of dying. And something gave me ha, huh, gave me that that breath mm-hmm. back. And it was like this kiss of aloha that like kissed my soul. And that moment there was that like just that tear of grace of like, you are going to be okay. Like your soul, you are okay. I like to tell people that I chose to to wake back up, that there was a moment there where I could have given up and Mm -hmm. and let go. And there was nothing wrong with that. That was like, there was, or I could choose to life. Mm -hmm. And I like to think that I chose life. Didn't know I was going to lose my limbs. Didn't know like the road of recovery and all the trials and like states of getting off of pain meds, being an addict. But that journey now has saved my life. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't trade a thing for it. You mentioned, I got goosebumps when you mentioned um, the kiss of aloha. Yeah. And that idea of ha in the breath. And in our first episode, um, Kainoa Harkajo explained to us aloha and ha in that breath. Yeah. And talked about how it's it's that spiritual breath it's the first breath we breathe like when we're born and it's the last breath yeah we expel before we die and so when you just said that like i got goosebumps because i know i know from like a spiritual sense what you're talking about yeah can you dive into that a little bit more and maybe even describe it a little bit more of what it felt like yeah so i hadn't become a surfer yet and so I hadn't experienced what it was like to um, fall on a big wave mm. and go into the dark. There's a there's a moment when surfing when you f- when you fall on a big wave where you actually go down there. There's no visible light. It is pitch black. And in that moment where you're coming back up through the white water to the surface, mm-hmm. you can start to see light. And if you happen to be like I like to open my eyes. You can start to kind of see the water light through the horizon. That moment for me is like when um, you punch through the surface and you're able to <gasps> take that breath. You've yeah. just been under in this journey. And now you're back at the surface and you can breathe again. The sunlight's on your face. Where I was in that ancestral place in my coma before that the kiss of aloha i was in that dark i was in that mm-hmm. place where there was no and that like moment of that like kiss of aloha where ha came back into my soul or that that like it was to me is like was being a big wave surfer and getting to the surface mm. it's like okay here's, here's reality you're back you're yeah. like yeah in the full chaos but wow. um yeah i've been doing a lot of work with alchemy, I started to look into Native American medicine wheel practices and have reached out to work with a few healers. And there's this thing with the medicine wheel where you work with the four elements, mm-hmm. um, earth, air, water, and um, 
fire. Mm. And then you also work with the four directions and the four seasons. Mm. So you've got winter, spring, summer, fall. Then there's the four energy bodies. There's our, our spiritual, our physical, our mental, and our emotional. And you can work with different elements and seasons and energy bodies and use nature mm. and breath and meditation or just intention for what's already like around us all yeah. the time. Because nature's here and it's always talking. Yeah. And so just a way for like, if it's something physical you're going through or emotional or mental um, or spiritual to, to tap into nature and um, use nature for healing. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Let's jump back a little bit because you mentioned prior to any of the incidents happening before your heart surgery, being on multiple pain medications. Were you on the prescribed dose or were you taking more than what was prescribed to you? So over the the five plus years that I was on specifically Oxycontin, um, my dose went from two or three pills a day of a relatively light dose um, to after a couple of years, it was four to six pills a day. And, you know, as a person taking the pain meds, the it stops working, mm -hmm. but it also attaches to your dopamine receptors. So when you have the sensation of pain, it's amplified when you aren't taking the pain medication. Sure. So it makes you feel like you need to take it more. Um, so I actually had issues with my doctors. They... Um, would only continue to treat me if I brought my parents in to the the situation of my addiction to pain meds mm -hmm. as well as dependency. Yeah. So in the last two years, I um, you know, I was getting counseling and had been prescribed stuff for depression, for being bipolar. Um, was given anxiety medications. Was given tranquilizers to help me sleep wow. and muscle relaxers to try to help alleviate the cramps and pains. So I, after five years, I was on a chemical soup of taking five or six different medications for different things. And then my pain med dose on those last two years was six to eight pills a day mm. of the highest dose of oxycotton they make which was the 80 milligram and i'd start at the 20 so i was in this taking a chemical soup of pharmaceuticals and was also in a really dark place i was depressed i did have anxiety issues there was some i don't want to call it schizophrenia but there was from the disconnect from reality mm. and my own energy bodies I felt like the world was out, like there was a, a, a hole in the world and I was falling into it. I was so depressed from isolating and nobody knew in my friend circle or employers or people because I knew that my parents knew 
and my doctors knew, and I had a problem with taking too many of the pain meds. So my doctors would only give my prescriptions for my pain medication to me every two weeks. They're like, we can't give you a month's worth because you're going to take more. Right. And you're going to run out early. So their way of managing it was giving me two weeks of pain meds at a time. Yeah, I ended up in a really dark place. Mm-hmm. The the thoughts I had about myself, of the world, um, my trust in the world, the ability to trust someone else, all these things were were falling apart like sand falling through an hour an hourglass. Mm-hmm. I had it was just eroding at such a rate that I can still dream. It's funny taking pain meds you get a a serotonin and a dopamine boost. So on pain medication, I believed I was still going to be a big mountain snowboarder and free rider. Still believed I was going to be a reggae musician. I would like on the pain medications is I was invincible in my best reality. And then the pain medication starts to wear off and you've got this hole Mm -hmm. and that void. And, um, I unfortunately had a attempted suicide. I'm glad that it failed. Um, and that was prior to the open heart surgery, or yes. was that after? Wow. Yeah. So, okay. I, so um, prior. So just in your, how do I want to say this? So, well, I guess maybe we need to fill in some gaps. So yeah. you are growing up and and living in this uh, nature environment and you're snowboarding and you're BMX bike riding and you're doing all these things that beat up your body and you're growing up. Now, did you go to, you finish high school, do you go to college or what age are you when you have that car accident? Yeah. I went the adventure route. Mm -hmm. I was, um, you know, it's a a smoker and a drinker and a rebel in high school. So I managed to, um, get kicked out of a couple high schools for yeah. having tobacco on school property or in my car, having alcohol in my car. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like teenage stuff. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to take my GED and hit the road instead of going to college. And um, I'm really grateful that I like found really cool hippies Yeah. and really cool people and, um, got really committed to trying to save old growth redwoods with earth Mm -hmm. first and some really cool groups that do work. Um, In my childhood, I had gotten to witness the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone. And then as a teenager, got to witness some of the atrocities happening with wild buffalo that were leaving the park Mm. and they were being corralled and um, killed and sold off for their meat. And so we did a lot of work with trying to haze buffalo back into the parks. So this really cool pre-20s era of like, okay, let's do stuff to save the planet. Yeah. I didn't get injured until I was after the age of 21, my first injury. In a free ride contest at Jackson Hole, I jumped a like 40-foot cliff, so like maybe 60 feet of air that I caught landed a little bit wrong and rode out of it, but I felt the pain in my back, Mm -hmm. but I advanced to the finals day. 
tried riding the finals day and jumped a small like 25 or 30 foot little cliff band and my back kind of tweaked and I just tomahawked down the slope end over end you know it's just taking Percocet Mm -hmm. so it was like I could still drink take some low dose pain medication I think was fine and then yeah I think I didn't know that I had addictive tendency it's in my family like it's all throughout, like my cousins and aunts have had addiction issues and drinking issues. But you feel so invincible in your early yes. 20s yep. that um, I was like, oh, I'm going to Colorado. I'm going to drive down to Aspen. And um, X Games was like two weeks out. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to get there. I'm going to train. Um, I'm going to try to make myself visible mm-hmm. in the world of um, freestyle snowboarding. And... Rolled my car end over end, going 70 miles an hour. So, yeah, it was the a series of events. And, I, you know, now that I know a little more about addiction, I had a predisposition to addiction mm-hmm. in my family. It's there. Now you go through open heart surgery. And coming out of that and, and stepping on the fish hook is right on the heels of that. But coming out of that open heart surgery... Are you detoxing from pain meds or are you still taking those because you just had open heart surgery? So in 2010, I hit, I maxed out. I I was taking eight to 10 pills a day of the Oxycontin 80 milligram. So I was taking 650 to 800 milligrams a day. And had Xanax and muscle relaxers and um, antidepressant, anti well, the Xanax was the anti-anxiety med. I mean, I was on a chemical soup. Mm-hmm. I asked my family, my doctors to save my life. This was post um, a suicide attempt. So I had brought my pain med dose down by more than a third in a period of six months. And um, that was when I had the dental work that led to the strep infection. So my body had hit its maxed out. Mm. And then it started the the withdrawals, staggered withdrawals. And then after the open heart surgery, committed to getting off pain meds. So it was quite a bummer losing the limbs and ending up in the hospital for, oh, the better part of a year and a half. I... um, Medical complications. I was the, the parent, my parents after the open heart surgery, and then the amputations couldn't happen right away. Mm. Um, doctors had determined my body was too weak, and if they tried to cut it and amputate anything, so I actually lived with necrotically dead tissue on my hands for the better part of six weeks. Um, as my body was getting strong enough to handle having an amputation mm-hmm. and, um, it lost so much core strength being in the hospital and with the open heart surgery that after three or four months in the hospital and all four amputations, doctors told my parents, I would not be able to live an independent life that I would need to live in a care facility that could mm-hmm. take care of people with the level of disability that I had, or I would be living with them. 
Wow. For the rest of my life. And um, that was a, a, like an energetic rock bottom for me. Mm-hmm. Literally having spent months in hospitals hearing that, well, you might need to live in a care facility for the rest of your life. And um, my heart failed. I, I had had um, the first heart surgery and all of the medications to keep me alive through the amputations mm-hmm. caused the first heart valve. They replaced the tricuspid valve. It failed. And um, I had right side heart failure with a 80% stenosed closed tricuspid valve that wasn't letting the oxygenation from my lungs get into my bloodstream. And my body was so weak. The cardiologist did the first heart surgery, said he will survive. He has about four to six months to live. We can go in with tubes every week. And it's called a paracentesis or thoracentesis, where they insert a tube in between the lining of your ribs and your lungs because you're drowning in your own fluid. And they were draining two to four liters of fluid out of my chest cavity. And all of that fluid was, uh, there was a, days where I had less than 10% lung function that was a- able to actually bring oxygen into my lungs. And then the heart being stenosed wasn't allowing the oxygen into the bloodstream. So my platelets crashed white blood cells crashed and hematocrit crashed. And then the top cardiologists in the country, the Mayo Clinic, um, Cleveland Clinic, Stanford, they, um, all the doctors said, there's nothing we can do unless we can get those platelets and white blood cells and red blood cells up. Mm-hmm. There's n- his body wouldn't survive um, the replacement of that valve but we can buy time with these procedures. And um, it was so hard on me to be around my parents who wouldn't give up on the idea. They're like, well, we're going to find someone else. There's mm-hmm. no, we're not going to accept that, that you're going to die. You mm-hmm. are not going to die. You've made it this far. There is no way. They're like, we're going to keep doing these procedures and you're going to get through this. And part of the making peace with dying, I was trying to make a plan for my parents to move on beyond. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you can grieve me or mourn me for a year. I'm like, but then you've got to live. It's like, because I got to witness an ancestral place in my coma. So I can't be in that ancestral place and you guys throw your life away. Like, you've got to move. I got to know that after a year you're going to go live and that you're going to. And um, so we made this plan. I was like, I want to be cremated and I love it. If you would turn my ashes into an artificial reef Mm. and then come back and visit it and see the reef growth Yeah, and have this like place. So I like had my piece was, I wanted to be at the bottom of the ocean as an artificial reef. Mm-hmm. And um, the weirdest thing, we came here back to this property from Colorado. And this is my my parents' place here. And 
friends would, were coming to visit and to say hi and um, check in on me. I was in my worst possible state. Um, it was really hard for, to even move. Simple things like going to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. There was no way to even get in a wheelchair and get to the bathroom. So I'd have to ask for someone to come help mm-hmm. put me in a wheelchair. Drinking coconuts and eating avocado and sitting outside and listening to the birds and feeling the air and the wind on my skin. And my neighbor, DeWitt, who runs the fish market and Nuka, we were getting some of the best fresh fish. And you didn't realize it, but after four to five weeks, I'm feeling better and my blood work's getting better. Doctors are like, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Something's working. Two months after that, my platelets had corrected, my white blood cells had corrected, red blood cells, hematocrit. And they went, this is our best chance. We're going to take him in and we're going to do the surgery right now. And they did the second heart surgery. And everything has been, well, it's been the journey of life since then. Yeah. But yeah, 14 months from the first heart surgery until the second one. Wow. Um. Yeah. So you you wake up from this coma and eventually between the doctors and your parents realize you're going to experience this amputation. Yeah. It happens. What's the mental process that you're going through? Are they they being your doctors or your parents providing counseling right away or was that something you had to seek out after the fact cuz I'm sure it has to be like, you know, a couple months ago, I was just walking yeah, onto a fishing boat, you know, or I was just hiking or I was just snowboarding. And now your whole life is completely different. What's that? What's that waking up in that mental process? The weirdest thing happened. I, I have a different perspective on it, but... This story that, um, it's not a story, it's, it's what happened, but so I'd been in a coma for almost 10 days and the doctors here at Maui Memorial didn't know if I was going to wake up. So the nurse, the shift changes at 7 a.m. My morning nurse, um, Corliss, would come in at 7 a.m. and open the curtains. And the curtains look out at Haleakala mm. from Maui Memorial. And she'd ask my parents, what kind of music does they like? And they're like, oh, he loves reggae. So she would come in, start her shift, and put on Bob Marley. So on that day, she did that. It was a beautiful blue sky day with all, clear visibility of Haleakala. And the sunlight coming right in my room. And she put on Bob Marley and was checking the lines and doing line replacements because I had lung machine keeping me alive, was intubated, um, dialysis tubes, all the IV tubes and hanging fresh IV bags. She, even though I was intubated, I started trying to sing along to No Woman, No Cry mm-hmm. and Three Little Birds. Mm. So she could hear that happening and she went and got the doctor. So everyone is so excited and they're like by my bed and crying and like petting my hands. So as I'm waking up, I'm waking up to my 
parents and doctors and nurses and people crying. And I'm in the worst possible pain yeah. <laughs> imaginable and intubated and slightly freaking out. But for two days, I all I could do to communicate because I was still intubated, so they'd hold up an alphabet and point at a letter. Mm. And I'd blink once for no or twice for yes for questions. And imprinted into my reality when they were telling me the story of waking up and singing along to Bob Marley, No Woman, No Cry, and Three Little Birds. Because um, the chorus line of both of those songs is every little thing is going to be all right. Mm-hmm. So as they're like telling this miracle story to to people or the life flight plane that was trying to fly me to Colorado or the doctors in Colorado about this is what happened. Here's his open heart surgery. He was in a coma. He had DIC, was on presser drugs, 10 days. We didn't know he was going to live. And then he reanimated. And so we're doing everything we can. That little like legend story like stuck in my head, like everything is, every little thing is going to be all right. Mm-hmm. So really, like, I really have this one love philosophy and reggae music embodies that. Mm-hmm. And that really, like, just to be alive and breathing. Mm-hmm. And I remember before that kiss of aloha, that ancestral place that I was in, losing ha Mm -hmm. experiencing that and in that soul plane Mm -hmm. of that that physical death or soul rebirth or whatever whatever happened when uh, ha re re entered and animated that like kiss of aloha like every little thing is going to be all right um i couldn't let go of that Mm -hmm. so even though years before i had attempted suicide, everything in my alchemy had changed. So I was not going to let losing my limbs or having, it's so weird. I was so dependent and addicted to pain meds for so many years. And then coming through this experience, all I wanted to do was shed them Mm. and get rid of them. It was like the soul and the body was like, this is toxic. Let it go. Yeah. Yeah. And so it became, I've been, Sober now eight years wow. from pain meds and just recently like six months from alcohol. Wow. So, yeah. That's incredible. It's weird. It's like a polarity shifted and suddenly the one thing that I was doing that was hurting and abusing all the parts of my body and soul, something else is like when the, when the, Polarity shifted. I was like, okay, how do I work and live? Mm-hmm. And um, so it was, it was incredibly painful and hard to, I used to be right-handed, losing the right hand. Little things like brushing your hair or brushing your teeth. Um, I started to have the hardest time with letting or asking for help with things like, tying shorts or shoes I'm like fuck <laughs> like I don't have a right hand yeah. like I'd look and be like well that's going to be impossible and then 
randomly mom would be like, look, I found this video of someone who's got one finger and they can tie their shorts and their shoes. And now like I laugh when I fall on a really big wave and it unties my board shorts in the lineup. (laughs) Cause then I'm, I'm out where it's already hard enough to be like in the impact zone and trying to get your shorts back on and tie them. And I'm out there like, so I was like, I can give you a hand. No, I can do this. But part of that like inner resilience is like, I can be in the most chaotic moment of surfing. And even though I don't have hands or legs, like it doesn't stress me. My board shorts coming untied. Like Mm -hmm. I can do this. I can totally tie these in this moment sitting on a surfboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I watched, um, and we'll talk about it in a minute, but I watched the trailer for the documentary that they're working on about you. Yeah. And in that clip, you say that you found your soul paddling out to surf. Can you describe that feeling of that discovery and yeah. how surfing changed things? Totally. I had a really heavy static that I carried in my energy body that was all over my physical body and all the depression and bipolar and addiction and all the, all the stuff. And then the trauma, it was, it was like a bell ringing, but it was ringing throughout my whole body Mm. and I couldn't shed it on land. Um, But being out in the ocean and paddling out and sitting on a surfboard and just hearing the sound of water sloshing through and you can hear the waves breaking there was a peace that happened and when that peace happened everything made so much sense on like a soul level Mm -hmm. that i started feeling myself petting the water with gratitude and just being like thank you moment for letting me be right here like right now it um it was hard at times to to um to share my story, but then I started to realize these little moments and wins happened out there surfing, mm-hmm. and um, so there was like this this moment where all of a sudden, like it wasn't that I was crying because there was like the trauma or the loss was so great. I was out there crying because the now was so great and it was Mm. like i'm i'm here i'm here in this now and be out there just like fully crying in gratitude and laughing and being just like oh my god i'm free and i like that freedom i'm like wow it it took so much work to convince my parents to let me sell off all of my snowboard stuff in my car in the mountains and move here 3,000 miles away from them into this little cottage. And now that I've been here for five years, and I wasn't a surfer when I did that. I did some work with someone in the medicine wheel and we were going through the trauma and the depression and the story. And what came through this whole three-day sacred athlete retreat was I needed to let go of that story and go and live in the now. And I didn't know how to do that in Jackson hole. 
in, in the mountain. Mm. Like my identity for who I was, was built in that framework. But then there's this magical place here, Maui. Mm. And my parents have had this farm for 25 years. And it's the place where my heart healed. And then I found that heart healing with surfing. So the spiritual, the physical heart healing happened. Mm -hmm. Then the spiritual heart healing happened. Now I'm like, I'm living in this, we're using just alchemy in nature and connecting to things. Um, I'm like living the impossible. So my mom loves to send the videos to the doctors that were like, he's going to need to live in a care facility. And she's like, look at him surfing this really big wave. And she sends him the video where the wave like fully guillotines on me and it slams me down. And she's like, and so it's so cool to have my mom, because I'm sure for her, people being like, oh, he's learned how to surf and he's starting to surf North Shore waves is like, what is what is my child doing? Right. But she's so supportive that... um. Yeah, so it's it's cool to to have come that full circle. And obviously you grew, you grew up being in nature and snowboarding, but what pushed you to surfing, especially after all the surgeries? Was what in you said, yeah, that's the thing. I don't know. Hollywood has a great way of like sensationalizing a triumphant moment mm. happening or a love story. Or you can like, right. or the the hero's journey. You've got like Marvel and Disney, right? Making these movies, or Moana, and just so like, I don't know the idea of like the ocean and ancestors mm. talking to us always. And I really love that storyline with Moana. Is that all of us have that inner warrior, that hero? Mm that wants to like triumph over something. And I had enough nemesis in my life that it was like, I needed to create and live that hero and, and find that like that inner warrior. That's like, you are not going to tamp me down and I am going to carry the surfboard to the beach and paddle out in overhead waves. But it wasn't ego driven. It was, like I wanted to go to the beach to pray and ask permission from mm. the ancestors to paddle out. And then as I'm paddling out, like the heart rate's up and I'm slightly terrified. And this is pretty good sized surf. I felt that like connection to that ancestral place that this is safe. And then mm -hmm. I was there to learn and not just be like, Oh, I'm going to paddle out and catch this big wave. Right but wanted to learn Hawaii surf culture and the traditions and be able to pay respect to both the Aina and the oceans. Mm -hmm. And that's that. I found that community of doing beach cleanups. Yeah. Really this like potent medicine where I had a lot of darkness in my life and in my story. And so me spending an hour or two doing a beach cleanup and filling trash and leaving something that I love so much better became that like connection to, wow, this is like stewardship for caring for 
this thing that's so big and yet it saved my life. Like mm-hmm. that, that moment of like sitting on the beach, half terrified and half praying to not only the location, but the ancestors to like look after me. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'm a, a product of Hollywood. Hollywood created yeah. this like <laughs> has someone with troubles or a nemesis or something yeah. in their life becoming or like a superhero and like fighting that like yeah. the light and the dark of the the universe so i'm like yeah I, I blame it on hollywood yeah yeah fully i wanted to like become my own superhero yeah to fight my own nemesis mm-hmm. because it's so much dark that i mean evil's not the right word i don't think like even the like bad villains in Stuff are necessarily evil, but it's like good versus bad. Just yeah. Like, yeah, there was some heavy, bad years in my life and creating and living in this like good where I can do something that helps. Mm-hmm. It's like my way of battling it. Yeah. Yeah. What is this life about? And I ask that, that's like a huge question, right? Like, what are we here for? That's a huge question. But if I'm going to ask anybody, I think asking somebody who's been in that realm of losing your breath or getting it back, which for listeners that maybe didn't catch episode one or aren't familiar, what I'm kind of referencing by that is like, life or death, losing your, you know, your soul moving on to the next or coming back into your body and bringing you back into this world, this reality we're in now. Yeah. That to me is the best person to ask of what is your perspective on why was it important that your, your ha came back to you, that your soul came back into your body and that you woke up from that coma? What's, what's the purpose of that? What it, what is this life? I love that question. That's a great question. Yeah, I love I part of me wants to like send it to that it's it's about helping that next generation. Mm. That it's because I I was lucky and I got to be raised by some pretty cool parents that taught me to connect to spirit and nature and the world around me. Um but I think it's simpler than that. I think it's everything is happening right in the now whether it's on the quantum level or if you go all the way out to like the supernova level Mm -hmm. and like our universe in the milky way like the now is such a blip of a moment and in this life we get to experience the highest of highs and triumph and love and the just all encapsulating now and also the lowest of lows and the ickiest moments and the heartbreak and the like, ah, despair. And it's all going to happen in a blip in cosmic time. But for us in this human form, it could feel like an eternity. I think all of us, it's that like magic of our soul where Mm -hmm. we get to experience all of that. Yeah. Like it just it happens and it's it's over or happened and it's over in a flash in like cosmic time. And but on like the the super quantum level, like 
the space in between you and I could actually literally be like talking to us right now. Yeah. And being like, hey, pay attention. But they're so tiny and quantum. But yeah. so we don't really even know. It's like, yeah. Yeah. The the mystery of it all is probably the greatest adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just trying to live in the now and like make each of the best parts of the now, whether it's I just had my heart broken for a month. I'm like sulking that my heart's fully broken. Or that a Hanu swam up to me while I was sitting on my surfboard and all of a sudden I noticed whales breaching mm. and I'm sitting there and the rainstorm passed and now there's a rainbow and you're like, fuck, I can't be upset about my heartbreak anymore. <laughs> like there's just too much good to be bummed about this heartbreak, but I really want to be sulking about the heartbreak, but you're like, fuck, yeah. there's so much good too. Like, Isn't yeah. that the... That's the miracle for me of nature is once you get into it and you get away from all the other noise and and you mentioned like that static or like that bell ringing in your body and I totally know what you mean. Yeah. And once you truly immerse yourself in nature, there is that moment of like, oh yeah, like number one, I'm just this tiny little thing in this gigantic universe so stop taking myself too seriously. But yeah. then two, it, this is such a miracle. This is so mind-blowing that even if the whatever I think is the worst thing happens to me, this nature still exists. I can still step outside into it or I can still have it in my head. And it, yeah, it's, but I, but I know what you mean about that static and that bell ringing because for me, when I snorkel, which is one thing I love to do because it's just quiet and your brain is only thinking about what I'm seeing are, you know, what's happening in the water, how, you know, when do I need to get out? But you're only focused on those conditions. Yeah. And so, and it's silent. And then as soon as you get out of that water, it's all the other considerations kind of start come racing back a little bit until you start to learn to just appreciate what the experience that just happened and now what am I going to do next and move on but I know what you mean about that that static for me that bell ringing turns off when my when my head's under the water and I'm focused on not myself that's so true yeah we um I mean we humans can carry I mean we I think we can choose to we can choose to carry a trauma or a Mm -hmm. heartbreak or something because sometimes our minds just can't let go of it or our energy like keeps calling up. And um, I'm learning, I've been doing a lot of work with mushrooms and mycelium and just actually learning how mushrooms can communicate in the soil Mm. from a tree that's needing help and can help pull and bring water from another area to that tree or if there's a tumorous part of a tree, like the mushrooms are, it's funny how mushrooms have this way of communicating with wow. their neighbor. Mm. And so I'm starting to realize like we as a, a conscious community, I didn't even realize the depth of the people who've influenced and inspired and impacted me. 
but there's some incredible water women and mm-hmm. men on this um this island like Andrea Moller who was one of the first Peahi women surfers and champion big wave surfer mm-hmm. and she does all of this work helping the younger generation face and be prepared for surfing big waves and she's an EMT and mm-hmm. just a super like badass human and so like to be out surfing with her um a few years ago surfing some small longboard waves with her and her daughter and um you know it's raining so not many people are out but the whales were out and we were having the best time ever mm-hmm. and that day of like being out where there's sometimes where like nature gets so quiet and you're on a surfboard you can hear the whales without even being under the water mm. like just sitting on the board then I started seeing some films that she was in and work that she's done over her 20 30 years as a water woman I'm like wow these there are some amazing people who've championed and still are championing out there so to like in a community of people who paddle to a mua which means to to move forward I've gotten to meet some really amazing people that and I don't even know if they know that they've become like heroes of mine. Mm-hmm. And then to be learning from them. I don't even know if they know how stoked they actually like the ripple down from them is. Right. Cuz there's like I there's moments like with Kai or Zane Schweitzer and those guys were they're they're out doing their level of game. Mm-hmm. But then they'll stop and talk waves knowledge and where to sit with you for just like a minute or two. And then you're carrying that nugget out there. You're like, mm-hmm. "Oh my god, I got a little wave pointer from Kai." He's like, "Oh, try and do this with your leg and shoulders to turn into the wave." And he's like, "Always look at where you want to be going on the wave." It's like, "If you look down at the reef, you're going to fall." He's yeah. like, "But if you look up at the lip line, that's you're going to go that way." And I always think I remember that cuz I I was probably the guy on the wave looking at how shallow the reef was and you know that you end up falling but if you look at where you want to go and it oh what a amazing metaphor for life what great advice for life right like looking yeah. at where you want to go versus looking down at the reef or looking back yeah, and your fears. Like, you if the reef is like your fear. Mm-hmm. I usually ask this as my last question, but I think it's just such a good point in the conversation to ask it. And then I want to ask you about um, uh, the documentary. But if you could sit down and have a conversation like me and you are having today with anybody living or dead, who would you like to sit down with and, and have a conversation? Oh, I mean, John Lennon would be... Mm. Uh, I would, there, he triumphed to, and stood for peace and mm. used music and poetry, but also embodied living it and carried it in a, and triumphed that in a time when war and propaganda and cultural shifts and 
the it's such a troubling time with racism mm. and also like women's rights and just equality. And here's this musician using music to bring peace and try and like heal mm. the world and use his voice. Cause I, I want to learn how to use my voice mm. as a aspiring musician and stuff. I'm like, man, I've, cause I got to work with this really cool, um, I don't want to call him a Taoist, um, spiritual teacher. And he goes, goes, I want to share with you the secret. He goes, if you can be grateful and you can have an abundance of love and peace, and if if surfing for you is creating that love of something and peace, he goes, if you can be grateful for that, a few moments of every day, can you also learn to appreciate that gratitude so you can grow that gratitude? Mm. Because you can grow that peace and that love just by being grateful for it. Wow. And if you can carry more peace and love with you, you won't even notice it, but the people around you will notice that, wow, this person has an abundance of peace and love. And really, you're just being grateful for something you already have, and you're appreciating it. Like, because you, people buy a house, they want it to appreciate. They want its value to go up. If you can find peace and love, be grateful for it and then grow that gratitude and give it to the world. Mm -hmm. And I was like moved by it, but it keeps coming back into my field. I'm like, wow, like gratitude is the coolest way to grow peace. Like if mm -hmm. you can find it. And for some people, mm -hmm. peace might be their yoga practice. You're currently part of a documentary project. Yeah. Um, they're currently raising funds on Indiegogo. There's yep. an Indiegogo campaign um, to finalize the, the production of it. What are your hopes with that documentary? What do you want that documentary to do? So there's a couple of really cool things. Going to share all the, the, the journey, the whole journey, the, the dark, hard parts, the really magical moments and miracles that happened. Um, but I also really want to highlight the push on adaptive, which is now being coming a parasport with mm. this year, it might be introduced into the Paralympics. Um, so adaptive surfing transformed my life and continues to, but also that inner athlete in me wants to succeed and win. So I travel to different countries and events and at first there was maybe a hundred of us, 120 um, that would compete at some of these world level contests. And now it's up to about 180, 200 athletes. So I want to, in the film, not only share my story, but share some of the stories of the people and the whole community. Yeah. Because part of me acclimatizing my past karma my past was doing really large scale beach cleanups 
And so there's a nonprofit here that works with Parlay and Sustainable Coastlines and Surfrider, but they're their own entity. And we go out with jet skis and boats and clean up miles of inaccessible coastline, mm. hard to reach beaches. And um, if possible, we can unload some of the bags back onto boats and get them back to the harbor. But for the most part, we're removing so many tons, hundreds of tons of marine debris and ghost nets that we actually have to use a helicopter. And so we utilize large scale beach cleanups. So the hope for the film is to educate people on the the harms that large scale commercial fishing is having on oceans, whales, um, coastlines, reef health, but also just simple beach cleanups, how that spiritual practice for me became a way of connecting to the ocean and the place that I found incredible healing. Um, but also advancing and seeing the sport of adaptive surfing grow and becoming mm -hmm. a para sport and showing that. And so there's this kind of whole in, in my story, all of those things are happening in real time throughout the, the five years that I've become a surfer, mm -hmm. but it created a, a flagship in my heart for something for me to hold on to. So whether it was heartbreak or whether it was um, a family member getting sick and being diagnosed with cancer or seeing the world go through COVID. Mm. And I had a really incredible experience with during the time of COVID. The filmmaker, Maddie Schweitzer, um, the world was shut down. Hawaii was on lockdown. Tourists were not coming. You had to have a two-week, you had to come in quarantine for two weeks just to be here. Yeah. He had worked with me doing some large-scale cleanups, and we did a big cleanup from Maliko up past Peahi and cleaned Peahi, or most people know it as Jaws, mm -hmm. in the fall. And we had gotten 45 of these large bags of trash off the coastline. Mm -hmm. So I had gotten to work with him as a filmmaker in that event. At that moment, I was wanting to talk about sharing my story with addiction. Mm. And he was interested in working with me. He approached me and said, well, I don't have any jobs going right now. I would love to take on your project. It's going to be a side project of mine. So he and I have been working together now almost three years. Wow. So the push is we have all of the footage for the most part. We need to sit down and do the editing and create the story. Yeah. And then and then just get it out there. Uh, listeners, the link to the Indiegogo, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. So if you're interested, go click on it, watch the trailer, learn a little bit more and, and donate to get this project off the ground. Oh, man. Can I share one little thing? Oh, yes. Please okay. Do. So I, I mean, being raised Native American, I um, had this connection with spirit, but my mom was also raised Catholic. So yeah. she went to Catholic school and Catholic high school. How her and my dad met at Humboldt State University, I have no idea. But they fell in love and decided they were going to go live in the, the reservation. And then I ended up being born in the Rocky Mountains. I have this cool little spirit that came mm, into my life. Yes. When I was the most addicted that I was on pain meds. So she's been in my life for 14 years. 
I call her my surf coach. So this little white dog is the coolest, but I, I, I don't know if she's an angel or an ancestor or if in a different timeline of like quantum life or soul, she's my twin flame mm-hmm. and wasn't going to let my flame be extinguished and jumped mm-hmm. into dog body to go on this journey. But when I had the legs amputated, actually, we'll go with the, the story to lead into it. So before the first heart surgery, when I was being rushed to the hospital, the cardiologist goes, well, I don't know that I can operate on this patient. He's taking six to eight, 80 milligram Oxycontins because I've never operated on someone taking that much. We need to put him in withdrawals. And um, on day three of withdrawals in the cardiac ward, um, I had an SVT heart attack. And so my heart ended up, I ended up having my heart. The first time it was stopped was for 30 seconds. The second time was for a minute. So I had a few more of these SVT attacks. Maya, my dog, could detect them happening. Oh, wow. So when I was going through losing the limbs, the cardiologist from the first heart surgery had already certified her as a service dog. So she immediately, when I got brought back into the room, she could be in recovery and ICU. Mm. So when they had cut off my legs and I came back in, she went and she laid right where the legs were and she stayed there for days. Oh. Anytime anyone would come back in, if somebody wanted to try to move her to like change my bed sheets or put me on a bedpan or something, she was like, don't touch me. It's like, I need to be with my human right here. And she wanted to lay right there, but it helped part of me in healing I remember when my heart had failed, the first heart surgery had failed and I had the heart surgeries going on. She would lay with me while I was laying on the couch, having a hard time breathing with her head on my chest. Mm. And so that power of like connection, whether it's your pet or your animal, like I believe we're so strongly connected beyond that. Yeah. That that like eternal, infinite love. So I have that same like love gratitude back for her. I try to spoil her as much as possible now. I don't know how to describe it. Like I've tried to say, somebody asked me, they go, well, then God saved your life. He gave you ha back. And being both Native American, believing in spirit, and my mom who is, she knows all of the the Bible and Catholic. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I I believe that Akua or God or great spirit or that ever so encapsulating thing without putting like a definition on it, true unconditional love mm. is already all of those things. And so I like, I have the coolest dog in the world, but I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of think of her as like my twin flame. So. I, I love this quote from Dolly Parton about dog is God spelled backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she has a story in one of her books of, sitting on her bed and contemplating suicide and her dog jumping up on the bed. And that was the moment that like snapped her out of, yeah. Oh, I have, you know, like, even if it's just this little dog, like I can't do that to this little dog. And then that moment changes your life. Totally. And I love the way you described it with unconditional love and and whatever you want to call that energy, that God forced God. Like you said, 
Oh, unconditional love. Isn't that the key? Oh. It, it so is. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and sharing your story with me and with our listeners and having this conversation with me. I just feel so blessed to have had this opportunity and I'm really excited to share your story and really excited to see this documentary once, um, once it gets going. And I, I trust that it will. Yeah, man, thank you for asking me. It's refreshing. Man, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing, but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week. And as always, thank you for your support.